Welcome to Breaking the Mold, exploring the people and issues fueling business today. It's business time. It's business time. It's business. It's business time. And now, let's break the mold. Off of sabbatical and back in action. Welcome to Breaking the Mold, episode number nine. I'm your host, Evan Roth, joined by guest co-host, Dan Roth. Thanks for having me here. Dan, so good to see it's you. so great really to is. have been invited back. Well, it's, it's... Am I the longest running co-host at this point? Uh, let's see. You are, but not by quality, by quantity. <laughs> um, there was, we've had a couple other who were only on like for half a show, but they were as good as like the eight ones that you've done. Yeah. Well, I think that I don't really start getting warmed up until typically yeah. when I'm guest co-hosting podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> I found in the past 20 episodes, 20, 20 to 25, I start hitting my sweet spot. Okay. All right. Good. Well, we're, we'll work our way up there. Yeah. It's like, what is he, that, what's the blink thing? It's like, how many hours do you have to do something before you're an expert? Yeah. I think it's not 20 blink. to 25 podcasts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I Everything's measured exactly. in podcast it's not, quantities. It's not blink. It's Malcolm Gladwell. It, it is a Gladwell. Blink? I'm yeah. not sure if it was blink or not. Yeah, it's blink. Yeah? It's Courtney blink. Says Courtney, yeah. Blink. All right. We've, uh, we have a fact checker in the room, Courtney Bogle, who's uh, given us the head nod that, uh, yes, in fact, that was blink. Um, but as you know, listeners, I, I, we want to thank you for your patience. It's been uh, a couple months since episode eight. Um, uh, the, the, the sabbatical was, was one intentional that we've taken over the last couple months. We wanted a chance for all the listeners to be able to go back, um, get nuggets out of the past episodes without feeling like there was a new episode sitting there on their shelf waiting to be listened to. Kind of, you know, like candy. You're going to want to have the new podcast if it's there. You go back and you listen to the old ones you over and over and over again. So the sabbatical was intentional. I think it's worked out well. And frankly, uh, we needed the time. I mean, we should be totally honest. We needed the time to read all the e- emails and, yes, and fan mails yes, we were getting. That is, and yeah. we just kind of finished up really like an hour before taping. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. I'm actually, there's still a few here that, uh, God, that they, they don't yeah, stop. They, well, they, they've come in in the last hour. <laughs> We have a special show post-sabbatical here, and that is with Jordan Roth. We are moving way off of Wall Street, and we are moving right into Broadway uh, for those New York geography experts. Uh, Jordan Roth is a star producer. He runs Jujamson Theater. He has been listed in more or less every news um, publication as being one of the not just youngest, but w- one of the most respected and Tony Award-winning collecting uh, producers and, and owner of theaters. And he's going to uh, share with us a little bit of kind of his past. He's got a very interesting family past. His mother actually was a Broadway producer, uh, and he's uh, he's going to be joining us here for in, in about five or ten minutes. But Dan, because I really do have sabbatical on the brain. Let's spend a little time talking from a business standpoint, whether sabbaticals are good or bad in the workplace. Just right. a little, just a story. Yes. My partner, Brett Barth, he was on sabbatical this summer. The way it works for my company is that once you've worked for 12 years for us, you are allowed to take a, a sabbatical. It's two to two and a half months where you are, if assuming you want to take a sabbatical, you are not allowed to check emails. Very, very periodic, just even ability to check in with what's going on in the office. And because of that structure, it allows for the person who's taking the sabbatical to really get out, rejuvenate, 
And as importantly, and the reason we do it from a business standpoint is it because it allows us to be sure that we can run with redundancies, that not one person is so relevant to the business that when they, they're plucked out voluntarily or involuntarily, that the business doesn't, to, doesn't continue to go on. But when I tell friends that we have this sabbatical policy, they think it's the best boondoggle. Why, why not? I would wish my company would do something like that. Is there anything that you think of in media, LinkedIn, other uh, places that does something like that? You know, when I used to be a Time Inc., there was a, a, a sabbatical policy, and I can't remember what it was. I think maybe it was 15, maybe it was 15 years, and you got to go on sabbatical. Um, and what I remember happening was people were people going away and trying to get either, they would either work on books or they'd work on degrees, but it was a lot of times people who were trying to figure out what the next career was for them. But so they would take that so time. time was sponsoring essentially Absolutely. the ability for someone to do career seeking. And everyone knew it, that that was the idea that you go, that you never knew. I think when you're in a shakier industry or an industry that turns out to be shaky, the sabbatical didn't start that way by the time I was uh-huh. at time when, when, when you were starting to see the foundation starting to crumble a little bit, that people were saying, what, what, what can I do next? I'm going to start, I'm going to use the sabbatical to help figure that out. What was the experience of what, what what I know that you have the sabbatical for that reason, but did you think first of all, I, you guys actually closed down, you went bankrupt during that period, so <laughs> so that was a failed experiment. <laughs> but did you find that uh, emerging from bankruptcy has actually been been a, incredibly like you know for us? I mean, I think it was it was a worthwhile transition. Um, did you find that it that it that the that the experiment was worth it? Well, it's not. So Brett was the third person to do it. So the original person who did it felt more experimental, and now it feels like it's part of our culture. It is part of what, what we do. Um, yes, but I think it's, it's not for everybody. Um, and I was telling a friend about the policy, and he works for a much bigger company. And he's senior in the company, and he went to the CEO and said, I think we should do a great thing that a friend of mine's business does and um, explain the sabbatical policy. The CEO looked at him and he goes, not only do I think that's the dumbest fucking idea I've ever heard, I question the commitment of anybody who even recommends it. And the guy's like, okay, wow. okay, I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to change, change that so that it's, if there is a, if the culture of a company is that time off equals yeah, lack of commitment, not willing to put all into the job, sabbatical or any vacation for that matter, is not looked at in the same way. And and, and that's not to say that companies that company is incredibly successful. You know, you could even argue it's even more successful than BBR Partners. Whoa. Okay, you can't argue that, but it's still successful. And so I don't think that I think that is important for us in trying to recruit people to come to the firm because it's a signal of the way in which we treat our staff and the way in which we feel like we want to work as a team and be collaborative. But there's a lot of different ways to be uh, you know, successful in however way you define it as a business, commercially or fulfillment. You know, but it does, it does require, when you set it up in a way that says you get sabbatical after a certain amount of years, it is a, and there's so few companies that operate with that kind of thinking that anyone's going to stick around for 12 years. You have so right. many more, it is, you know, a four-year max. You think about people being on tours of duty, of coming in and they're going to they're gonna last for four years and they're probably going to jump somewhere else. And sometimes in some companies, especially in the tech world, people who last that long, you do you almost question why those people are still here. You've been here for that long. Wow. Um, what is the, uh, do you think that, the, so you look at something like Netflix, where Netflix would say, 
on day one, you get to take as much vacation as you want. You can have your own sabbatical. You can craft your own sabbatical. If tomorrow you want to leave for three months, that's no problem. Um, Wait, I'm, I'm sure I'm, I, there's something wrong with it. The micro, your microphone must be busted. <laughs> that's the way it works. Yeah. So just let me... So As so, much vacation as you want, so let's whenever go, you want. We, we need to get jobs at Netflix. Absolutely. Tomorrow, let's go start at Netflix and then take a sabbatical and start and start back at LinkedIn and BBR Partners. It's a good question. It is a good point. You can still get fired. You can still get fired. Oh, oh, you can take okay. as much vacation uh-huh. as you want, but your managers might not uh, look fondly on it. I actually... Okay. It's even. Every, I think it's. I think everyone's it's a, it's a an at-will employee, right? right? So you could get fired for that. Absolutely. But if it's company policy that you're allowed to do that, and then you get fired for doing it, as you, I mean, look, you're not doing your job for part of it, and I guess you can take it to any extreme. The way we, it's worked for us is that there is, it's a, it, it's a reward, right? It's twelve years. It's not one day, but the reward is part of the reason to do it. If it was just a reward, we'd figure out some other way to provide it other than time off. I don't know. Maybe it's just the difference between financial services and tech. There's The reward is continuity and relationships, relationships with colleagues, relationships with clients. There's not any of that value in media technology? I think that to stay somewhere 12 years is pretty surprising that there would be a it would be unusual to stick around for that long. It, but it's not the industry is so new too. 12 years ago, the, you know, the tech world was in flame trying to recover from the dot com boom. Yeah, no, that's true. And and it is a it, the job market is so hot in tech right now that sticking around is not something that, it is easy to, it is so easy to leave jobs right now. Right. It's easy to leave and get new jobs. Exactly. All right, so we'll have to revisit the sabbatical policy once technology is, you know, as an industry. Have we decided how we are doing sabbaticals for our podcast Breaking employees? The by the way, yeah. Um, no, do you have, you have any ideas? Let's let's discuss. Let's do that off the air and just let's go over our full HR policy. Actually. Okay, well, we should, <laughs> we should <laughs> on our next. Uh, that might be why it takes us so long to go between episode nine and ten. If it's, any listeners are wondering yeah. why wh- what the delay is, well, now HR. that now that we've hired Courtney as a fact checker, perhaps we can also have her work <laughs> on, on our H- HR policy. She's going on vacation. Well, what we we are not <laughs> we are not going to go on sabbatical. Uh, before Jordan comes and join us in the studio. So right. we are looking forward to seeing him here, and we will be right back on Breaking the Mold. It's business. It's business time. You know You're listening to Breaking the Mold. You can follow us on Twitter at BTM Show, or you can email us at btmshow at iCloud.com. Now, more of Breaking the Mold. Hello and welcome back to Breaking the Mold. This is Evan Roth. Dan Roth and I are happy to have here in the studio Jordan Roth. Jordan Roth is the president and owner of Jujamson Theaters, which is uh, the overseer of five Broadway theaters. And these aren't just any theaters. These are the ones that if you took a slice of people in New York of the five shows they are most likely to see while they visit town, they are Jordan's Theaters. They are showing The Book of Mormon, A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, Kinky Boots, Jersey Boys. Jordan goes way back. This is Jordan's career um, stretching back since the early 2000s, kind of post his education. Jordan was a Princeton grad from 1997, Columbia MBA in 2010, uh, came out with a bang even before the MBA. Um, and actually in 2001, Jordan was a, a Tony Award nominated uh, producer for the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So he's gone on to, to continue in that field and has had tremendous success. Um, we're going to get uh, into a lot of Jordan's background and a little bit of what Jordan is doing currently. Um, but first, we want to make it clear to our listeners that Jordan is not related 
to me or Danny. Sadly. Sadly. Yes. Yeah. We, um, there's a couple ways to know that. One is he's far too tall. Secondly, <laughs> um, he showed up here on time, uh, which is a Roth trait that Danny and I have never had, nor any member of our family. But there's a third way that's probably even more obvious that you're not a member of our family, Jordan. And that is because Danny and I, we had a, we had a great upbringing. We had a great, great family. You know, I mean, you know, but like every family, there were moments of abuse. And one of Danny's... Um, is that uh, every family? Every family. Every family. There are, there are skeletons in every closet. All right. I want to hear where you're going with this. It's going to be that yeah. kind of <laughs> podcast. Here's, here's the abuse that Danny, that Danny would tell you today was the worst of his, of his growing up is in family road trips when we were confined to a car. Um, Danny would be in the back seat, and my mom would turn on Broadway tunes. <gasps> I the love moment, your mother already. Danny did not love our mother during that moment. Um, it was actually the most enjoyable time for me to see how much he disliked Broadway tunes and being stuck in the car. I enjoyed that, Dan. Yeah. Broadway yeah. torture chamber. It was painful. It was incredibly painful. And the truth is that I would have jumped out of the car if I could have as soon as those tunes went on. But um, but I, I just the, the doors were triple locked. <laughs> and I, th- I think, Evan, you're, you're putting this all on me, but you would have jumped out too. If you weren't still in a car seat even at 18 – uh, you probably would have had it. You probably would have yeah. jumped out also. But yeah, you couldn't well, undo the latches. That's right. I, well, I, I wasn't able to, to do that, Dan, but I, I, I was able to enjoy the Broadway tunes, and I'm, I'm here to enjoy Jordan. You're much more cold about his. Do you I'm remember what she past. played? What were, what were her favorites? Ooh, uh, Man of La Mancha. Uh, that's it a Broadway show. I, Don Quixote. The, uh-huh. Come on. Oh, you yeah. remember Amazing. it. Jordan, right now our mom is singing along with you. Hi, Mom. So, Jordan, give us a little bit of a stage, sort of set the stage for us, all right? Oh, nice. Which is, thank you. Yeah. I was hoping someone would pick up <laughs> Good on luck. that. Um, what was it like for, like, family road trips for you growing up? Okay, well, family road trips were from New Jersey to Times Square to see said Broadway show. Um, we, we went to the theater all the time. Huh. Um, and I think, you know, most people who... Uh, love the theater start started luckily um, when they were little this is this is a passion that is passed down from generation to generation and going to the theater can be something that families can share um, in very unique ways and that was true for for me and my family but ex- exposure doesn't necessarily mean that's the choice that you would make with your career no no um, but I do think that everybody who works in the theater uh, is here because at some point they sat in a theater and the lights went down and they were changed. Hmm. Um, everybody's got that story. Everybody has the, I saw, the, and maybe it was an amateur production somewhere in a hometown. Maybe it was a Broadway show. Maybe it was watching the Tony Awards on television. But everybody's got the, oh my God, I saw that, and I said, that's what I want to make. So do you remember the first one that put you in that? So I don't remember the first one that I saw, but I do remember the first really seminal show for me, and it was the original Lacage. And I had a chance to go backstage, and I remember poking my head I must have been like seven um, I remember sort of you know poking my head into the dressing room of the Kajels if you remember Kaj and all the Kajels 
um, with all of their costumes and wigs and stuff. And one of the uh, elements, shtick, is one of the Kajels uh, has like a dominatrix moment and has a whip. And then, and I remember, seven, um, <laughs> seeing this whip coiled up and hung on a hook in the dressing room. And it was the first time that I made a connection between the onstage life mm. of something I had seen and its offstage life in quote unquote real. Hmm. Um, and I don't know how much of that um, I digested at the time, but I do remember it as an early seminal moment of thinking about how does this get made? Something how goes is this magic? Yeah. Um, created. Right. What does it mean? What are all the pieces? Mm -hmm. um, and that was the beginning. I would think for a lot of people, seeing something like that would make them want to be on stage. Did you always know that you wanted to be behind the scenes? Totally no. Um, so growing up, I always thought I wanted to be an actor. Um, and I think a lot of people, that, for, that's true for a lot of people who love the theater because there's not a third grade theater owner um, you you are interested in the theater, you go on stage. Right. Um, and people either find their way that that was a, just something I was interested in school and now I go on to my life as a dentist mm -hmm. and I always love the theater, or I stay on stage, or I figure out as, as you grow up and as you continue to make theater and be involved in school or camp or programs or whatever, all the other ways in which you can have a life contributing to the making of theater. So people go from acting to directing or to advertising in theater or um, house managing or stage managing, all kinds of lives that are made, um, but you don't know that in the beginning. So for me, I figured out in college that I really didn't want to be an actor. Um, and I don't know who I thought I was or how I got to this uh, line of thought, but it wasn't at all, oh, it's so hard a life or the odds are against you. And that's a lot of um, what can deter people from a life in performance. Um, for me, I thought, okay, let's assume that I get it. Do I want it? And I didn't. It wasn't, it wasn't the work that was filling me. I started, and I started to get much more interested in the whole, and how is this whole thing uh, created? All of its moving parts, not just the singular piece of performing one role in it, mm -hmm. literally. Um, and when I graduated college, um, very soon after that, I started producing my first show. Um, and it was totally fortuitous. You know, it took took a while to stop performing because that's where my momentum was, so that's what you keep doing. Um, but when I got back to the city after school, um, these friends of mine, actually a dear friend from college, her sister was part of a small uh, theater group. It was four actresses and a husband and wife writer-director team, and they would do these pop culture mashup crazy shows and I would go just to support my friends. Um, 
And they started working on developing this show, and they were like, we don't really know what this is, but it's Midsummer Night's Dream and disco music, and I don't know, but you should come check out what we're doing. And I did on a Friday at midnight on the Lower East Side in this little back room of a club, um, and I saw the beginning of The Donkey Show, which was my first, the first show that I produced. And I started producing it in my head before I even uh, knew what that kind of a life would really be for me. Which I think is interesting because your, your mom, Daryl Roth, mm-hmm. is an a, a amazing Broadway producer herself. Mm-hmm. And yet it sounds like your education came once you got into the field, not from learning it from her. Was she part of what made you want to be in this field, not want to be in this field, and you did it in spite of her? Oh, no, no, absolutely. We, you know, our theater going, we both started as fans. And so our, back to the road trips from New Jersey. Um, And so we connected on the theater and we loved the theater together. She started her her career when I was 13. Um, And for those years, I had front row seat to shows that were developing, shows that were working, shows that were not working. So absolutely, that was a big part of it. Strangely, it didn't occur to me that I might be a producer as well. You saw her as a mother, not as a producer. No, she was a producer. I was an actor. Right. Okay. Until I wasn't. Got it. Until I figured out. And I think that was part of the my own maturation process um, uh, and part of figuring out what was uniquely interesting to me and what my contribution would be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I found my way to producing. Ultimately, that was not my last stop. Um, but it was a very... Um, it was an important adjustment. Mm-hmm. Was the the Donkey Show was so different from a normal uh, Broadway production? Were you on purpose trying to break the typical? I don't want to say break the mold. Were you trying to change the way? Uh, were you on purpose trying to change the way Broadway was done, or this just happened to fall? You said, "Oh, this is they're doing this. This is cool. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna support it. I'm gonna I'm gonna get behind it." No, totally. That was the goal. It was um, the goal to be to, to do, do something, do something very different. different. Mm-hmm. Why? Um, it wasn't different for different sake. It was, um, we were interested in, still interested in, um, theater that was powered by the audience's energy, which is to say, well, I believe this is true of all theater, um, but experimenting with it in its sort of most, in its purest form, um, the audience is necessary. Their presence is necessary. It's required in order for the project of theater to be complete, which is not necessarily true of other art forms. So you can paint a painting and put it in a closet, and it is still a painting. You make a show, and you perform it for no one, and it is a rehearsal. It's the, an approximation mm-hmm. of the thing. It's a preparation for the thing. It is not the thing itself. So what completes the thing, what makes it theater, is you are watching it. 
It could be one person, it could be 10,000 people, but the audience is necessary. That, as I said, I believe is true of all theater, but taking that out for a test drive and really pushing it uh, was what we were interested in. And The Donkey Show um, was set in a nightclub and performed in a nightclub. Not a fake nightclub, not a set of a nightclub, a nightclub. Um, and the idea was you would, the audience would come in and be on the dance floor and be at the bar and the story would happen all around them. And instead of a, a normal, a, a usual show is, uh, a usual two act show is um, structured as a sort of ramp up and a pause and then a further ramp up and a little bit of a come down. And that's how you end when you come out, right? The Donkey Show, I realize these hand gestures are not useful for a podcast <laughs> listening audience, but like... For the video uh, Roll version. with me. Um, the Donkey Show was a straight line up that then shot you out. Because the rest of the evening was continuing up on the dance floor, right? So um, we were... We were really interested in creating an immersive experience, which is very different from an interactive experience. For us, it was about, um, we'll create a world, you can live in it however you want, which is very different than we're gonna grab you and pull you up on stage and embarrass you, that's interactive. Mm -hmm. um, but the experiment was exactly as you're saying, how do we um, push the form um, and for us, it was melding theater and nightclub. Audiences aren't homogenous, right? No. So each night of the donkey show would have the potential to have a different type of experience. If you look at your current shows, Kinky Boots, even looking back at Hair, Jersey Boys, audiences are all different. But yet the show is remains to its script. How do you meld what you've just described and what your goals are for Broadway with the fact that there is a evolving audience that you can never really be fully prepared to be able to integrate and to fully get you know involved in your shows? Right. Um, well, I think the tenants are the same. Um, and I, I a little bit challenge, yes, the show is the show. But if you know the show very well, and you watch it over and over and over again, each performance performance is strikingly different. Um, you wouldn't know it to sit and watch it once, or maybe two years later. Yeah. But the whole project of theater is, as I said, it matters that you're there in the audience. It also matters that we are on stage and live. Mm -hmm. Um, so the exchange of energy, the, ex the communication between audience and performers is what makes theater. Um, so it is different. It's, it's imperceptibly and epically and it, different. it's different because of the audience? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but your point is still well taken. That is, it, it's different within a... Uh, tighter bounds, whereas mm -hmm. the donkey show might be 
even more different. But truthfully, The Donkey Show was um, impeccably choreographed and timed. So yes, there was room for uh, audience to adjust it or for the actors to adjust around the audience, but um, everything was really well anticipated and made to look as though it was just happening and you happen to be here, so we're over here, but actually we've guided you there. Right. Did they so after the donkey show? Did you know was that was that a, a, such an eye opener to you that you said this is it from now on? This is the path. Totally so one show after no. The next? No, totally no. Because it's funny. I mean, even you, you, the reviews even at that time as 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 cutting edge as the donkey show was, you still had the New York Times saying it's an indication of things to come in the theater. It ran for six years. You were how old? Twenty four? No, uh, twenty four. Yeah, two, twenty three. Yeah, that. So. Why did why did it seem to occur to the mainstream public, you know, the reviewers, that you were onto something, but it didn't occur to you that there was anything more than just the donkey show? Well, I don't think um, I didn't know that it was what I wanted to do, um, and I think being deliberate and conscious in your in our choices in our, how we spend our time, how we, um, how we fill ourselves is really important. Um, I'm much clearer about articulating that now than I was then, but I think I was still doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is to say, not letting uh, momentum just carry you to the next thing because isn't it obvious that it follows from where you are now? You must have had all kinds of opportunities once this turned out to be a hit. People were coming to you with crazy immersive theater projects <laughs> that, that you could get I involved with. I did a with. little bit become the patron saint of crazy theater <laughs> for a couple of years. Um, um, but no, I think um, you know, I remember when the Donkey Show opened I thought like, okay, well, so what's what, what do I want to do now? Um, and it wasn't really until the second that I thought, oh, I actually maybe do this. And I think it's the difference between um, project and professional identity, right? So at that time, I was producing The Donkey Show, which is different than saying I am a producer, project, professional identity. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, I think professional identity is, is a question uh, that is particularly challenging in our business and in, or really in any, uh, in all of the arts fields. Why is that? Um, because what you call yourself and what you are doing every day may not be the same thing. Um, you may... Can we take a back? What does a producer do? Sure. Um... A producer runs the business of a show um, and in many cases is, and the way that I like to produce, is uh, straddles the artistic team and the business team. Um, There's a very important artistic role for the producer to play as a collaborator with the director and the writers and designers uh, and performers. And there's also a very important business role, which is as the head of the business team 
general managers, uh, company managers, um, all the advertising and sales efforts. Um, and so the business part is raising the money, uh, budgeting, selling. Creative part is making. So, so you, but can you go back to them? Why now that you, now that Evan has, has learned what a producer is, what the um, what the come on in. I might not have been on the road trips. I might not have been listening to the music, but but you know what a producer was. I knew, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Okay, I was like, uh-huh. oh, metal uh-huh. Great bet. producer, great producer. This one happened to be true. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, See, yeah, well, See? you learned it all. all right, I've forgotten his name uh, right now, but um. <laughs> The uh, uh, so why is it so difficult to say? I mean, that's it's a very clear role. Why would you not? In the arts, don't people say, "I'm a producer. I produce shows. Here's how it goes. Here's my string of. I've done this show. I'm going to produce this show. I'm going to. Here's my string of shows. You're a director. You're an, an yeah. Because here's an artist. here's the reality is, these shows take huge amounts of time to develop. Um, a, B. In many cases, you need other people to um, either help you do your work or let you do your work. Um, So you can be a producer and not have produced a show for five years because you're developing a show. Um, you You can be an actor and know in your heart that you're an actor and that's your craft, um, and yet that may not be how you make your living. Um, and you may not have an answer to what are you in now or what have I seen you in uh, for a very long time. And so one of the challenges of a life in the arts is um, holding to I am a writer, Hmm. I am a producer, I am a director, even though that may not be what I woke up and did today. Um, and the people who can have a sustained career are the people for whom that is not debilitating. Right. And I, th- there's, I would imagine it becomes easier to self-identify in that chosen field, your art, the longer your resume, right? Sure. So now you look in Playbill and it's a two-column long description of the things you've done. So even though you aren't doing anything now related to your chosen field, there's still a recognition from the external world that that is who you are. That's how you've been successful. Does that, that may be true, but that may not be how that person feels. Uh-huh. Um, and how, how do you feel? Well, you've got I'm, in a, different, in, action now. I'm in a right. different position at this point right, because right. I have you evolved have from or I evolved like it's some um, state of being, but I have shifted uh, from uh, being an independent producer to running a chain of theaters. Um, And so, and that's actually one of the things that I responded to about uh, working on the theater side is it is an ongoing concern. It is not project by project. You like that idea of having something solid every day you wake up and you know what you're doing. I do, I like building something over time with a team. I like that um, I don't know what my shows will be in 10 years, but I know that I'll have shows uh, because I'll have theaters and God willing. Um, And so what that means is that what I get to spend my day doing is having one eye on tonight, all the shows that we are running tonight, 
and one eye on one, two, five, ten years down the road. Um, and in many of those, in many of those um, markers, I don't. As I said, I don't know what the show's going to be, but we're still planning towards there will be shows, mm-hmm. and so we're developing our team, we're developing our buildings, we're developing our artists, we're developing our audiences. Can we talk about also? So you, this is that's that is an incredible full time job. It is more than a full time job. You're also the CEO of Culturalist, though. Yes. So w- w- at what point? First of all, can you explain it a little bit, and then also explain what made you say this is great? I've got this insane job. I got to think about today. I got to think about tomorrow. And well, let's I, do some more. Let's start, start something else. Keep it coming. Yeah. Um, well, when you put it like that, maybe it wasn't my smartest <laughs> move, but it feels great. Um, so Culturalist is a an online platform for culture conversation through top 10 lists. Um, the top 10 list is ubiquitous, right? It's every, every magazine, every newspaper, every television has got doing lists. Um, but I would, I remember like opening the newspaper and reading the top 10 shows of the year, Broadway shows of the year and thinking, okay, I know what I'm talking about and those are not the top 10 shows of the year. That is generally people's response to a list is, no, that's not right. Mm-hmm. Um, and all you could do is shake your fist, right? Or maybe like write a comment online to the, uh, about the list. Um, but in this moment that we are in, this fascinating cultural moment where every form of communication has been democratized, except the list. So that's what we've built. So the idea was, we should have a platform. I should be able to publish my list of the top 10 shows of the year. You should be able to publish yours. Um, And then what became even more interesting in this thought exercise was not just my list or your list or your list, but the collective list. So what do we as a community think? What's the crowdsourced wisdom on everything? So we built Culturalist as a platform where anyone can come and start any list. You could start top 10 best podcasts. business podcasts. They'd all be breaking the mold. That'd be kind of weird. Episode That's one. cool. Yeah. We're on right episode, episode nine. Exactly. We'd, we'd probably go through episode nine again. Right. Kind of have fun. Well, you do next week's and then you <laughs> have your 10. Um, but what's interesting, right? So you would make that. Yeah. And then I could respond not by saying, oh my God, Evan, what about blah, blah, blah. I'd make my list and your list and your list and his list. Um, and the system is constantly aggregating. Um, it has been so fascinating. We've just, you know, we're rel- still relatively new. It's been so fascinating to watch people fill this with their passions and their creativities and, and um, spark dialogues. And that's really, that's the core of what's interesting to me is broadening and deepening the cultural conversation. It goes right back to immersion. W- what is the... Um... What is how many lists are you up to now? Do you have a number? Oh God, I don't know. I uh, tens of thousands. Wow, wow. Um, and it grows every day. Do you have a target goal? Um, world More? domination. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, no. I think the lofty goal is what everybody thinks about everything in top ten form. Yeah. Um, and we've started working with some really interesting brands. Uh, who are using Culturalist as a tool to engage their audiences. Um, So, you know, MTV, for instance, was making lists and 
they would make a first list, share with their audience on social and say, what do you think are the top 10 best Mean Girls moments? What do you think are the top 10 best moments of this season's Teen Wolf? Um, and, it, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's very high-low, as the culture is. It was the, I was listening to the CEO of Yelp talk a little bit about his goals. It's where, you know, culturalist will be, you know, probably in a couple of weeks. Um, and Yelp. I'm knocking on the wood of your desk. <laughs> <laughs> so he, his view is the only real way that you can get a sense for kind of best thinking is through quantity. Mm -hmm. And he was uh, comparing it to Google Plus, which he took a pot shot at and basically said, if you want to go find a pediatrician and you do a Google search and the pediatrician that comes up is recommended by two people and you end up going to go get services from the pediatrician and your child gets sick because of it, you have Google to blame. You won't have that issue with Yelp. And I thought it was an interesting way to spin essentially that Yelp, which on its own provides a great good service, is he even needed it to be bigger. He needed it to be something that was saving the world. Do you feel like, I mean, clearly Culturalist is a design for fun and commerce and other things, but do you look at it and say, I need this to be something that's really revolutionary in a much bigger way? Um, for me, it is um, the singular voice is as revolutionary as uh, change the world business or idea. So I think it's both. Um, it's exactly how I think about the theater, right? You can have a show that changes the world, changes the form, um, and yet watch one person watch it, watch one person be changed by it, and the world is different or that person. Um, and I don't think you change the world without changing a person, and then a person, and then a person. Jordan, you've changed all of us here. Ah. <laughs> uh, it was wonderful having this conversation with you. Wish we had more time. Keep doing shows. Keep doing new things. So keep coming to back. shows. Keep coming to shows. Your you mother doesn't have to lock you in a car. <laughs> I go willfully now. Uh, Danny yeah. goes willfully. Danny's kids go willfully. I even more it. important. Right. And See they that. sing Kinky Boots together. No, so, they don't. Honestly, uh, I think you Kinky Boots talking Let about me raise you one up. Thing. You have you have changed the the concept of cross dressing for every member who's ever every every person who's ever seen the show. You talk about changing the world, including our five year olds. I, I take that as a, as a true badge of courage, and I love your five-year-old <laughs> already. Good. You'll get to see them in Halloween costume dressed in that way right. later tonight. Um, Jordan Roth, thank you again thank for you being here. Thank you very much. We wish you all the best. Thank you. You too. just my socks, what time it is. Breaking the Mold wants your feedback. Please visit our iTunes show page and tell us what you think about the show. Now, back to your hosts. That was great. That was, that was, that was interesting. So Jordan Roth now has left the room. There's only two Roths left. Dan, what did you think about Jordan? Um, I thought he was fan, fan, uh, really amazing. 
uh, fantastic was the word I was going to say. Either fantastic and amazing. Those yeah. are both work. Fant amazing. Um, Amatastic. Amatastic. And I th what I, what really stuck with me was this idea of the um, of in the theater world, or I guess in entertainment, of not being able to say what your professional identity is, how hard it is to have a professional identity. I think that you and I probably come from a place where you start doing something and that becomes your right. who yeah. you are. And it's very easy to say, you know, when you're filling out your, your your customs forms and says, what do you do? You can just write down, you know, journalist or editor or investment advisor, whatever it is. And that he that there are people who don't feel that even though they're producers, they're like, am I really a producer? Am I not? And getting ready and being able to say that. Right. And, and that, that Jordan, of all people, who's got the kind of resume that he does, still has. Still say that yeah. It's not an insecurity, but there is a discomfort if you're not doing something right now that's consistent with your professional identity. It stops becoming your profession. Yeah. And he needed the grounding of the theaters, of right. to have actual physical theaters to call his own. Right. Just to... to to, for the first time, feel comfortable saying, this is who I yeah, am. Yeah, having something, a creative person like Jordan still needing something that he can touch to actually say, this now makes me a, this this defines me as a profession. Uh, you and I don't actually touch anything, right? But we have a place in our profession. We go to work, we deal with words, we deal with numbers, we deal with abstract concepts. I don't know, do you feel, and have you ever, before Jordan brought this up, ever felt like I don't really know how to distinguish my personal versus my professional? No, it's been pretty clear. Yeah. And, um, and the other thing I thought, speaking of what we do versus what what he does, is this idea of not operating. Actually, you might feel this way too, more, is the idea of not operating at scale, is that he says, when, if I can make the difference in one person's life, you know, right. if one person lights up, that is a success. No, actually, I absolutely identified with that personally, is that... Um, even going to the discussion that we had about the CEO of Yelp and the difference between Google's approach to it, that I would rather have the two best pediatrician recommendations from the two highest experts, and I don't really care about numbers, um, as being something that I, I could feel a, a pride in from a, from a professional standpoint. It's why we have a much smaller scale business. You'd be out of work if you weren't focused on scale. And if you think about Jordan, right, his perspective is if he gets the, if he changes one person's life, if he gets the email afterwards saying how amazing, you know, the, the show was, he feels a job well done. Yeah, absolutely. That was terrific. Um, and as they, uh, as they say in the theater world, the show must go on. <laughs> <laughs> So we'll, we'll have to keep so, this going. And, and, our sh and, our sh our, that, and our show's ending. Uh, so our show... As they uh, say in the theater world, that's a wrap. We've broken our legs. I like, no, I like, like, show must go on. And the show must stop. For Dan Roth, I'm Evan Roth. Breaking the mold. We'll see you next time. It's business time. It's business time. It's business been listening to Breaking the Mold. Let us know what you think of the show via Twitter at BTM Show, through email at btmshow at iCloud.com, and at our iTunes show page. Breaking the Mold is recorded at Mixopolis in New York City. 